0: Welcome to Third Friday's, the monthly legal talk show from Lois, LLC, featuring attorney Christian Seeson. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Seeson. Hi, everybody. This is Christian Cisan. Welcome you back to the Third Friday's Podcast. It's June of 2022. We're right into the thick of summer and enjoying our time as the weather gets nicer. We have a great show for you today. We're going to start with an attorney conversation about World Trade Center claims and then transfer to a segment with the paralegals called the Paralegal Minute, where we're going to talk about a case involving pet snakes, and working for companies that you might not be telling uh, the insurance company or your own attorneys, uh, which will be kind of fun. That will be with Uma Mystery and Melissa Gannon. But first on the show, I have uh, my fellow partner here at Lois Law Firm and a very, very, very significantly invested man in World Trade Center claims uh, based on his experience and success uh, defending those cases. Tim Kane, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Now, when I
0: think of World Trade Center claim, I I immediately think, aren't we in the year 2022? Uh, I know it was a very devastating uh, event for us that we're still uh, grieving, but why are we litigating World Trade Center claims 21 years later?
1: Well, the reality is, if we're talking about new claims, uh, substantially all of them are for latent diseases, so respiratory illnesses or cancer, things like that, things that people maybe weren't diagnosed with until just recently. And maybe they go out of work or they just go see a doctor and get diagnosed and they file their uh, WTC-12, they file their C3, and here we are. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense, right? They're not filing
0: an orthopedic ankle injury from a slip and fall at the World Trade Center 21 years ago. Correct. Or maybe they are, but they're not getting sent to us to litigate because those are very clearly claims that are late. In terms of timely filing, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, substantially all of them. Maybe all of the ones we're seeing now are for occupational illnesses, um, breathing things, stuff like that, or psych, psych, psychological claims as well. But uh, usually not orthopedic injuries at this stage. That in theory wouldn't have a direct or
0: maybe sudden manifestation in 2001 or 2002. It's you know 20 years of the fact I now have lung cancer or emphysema or some kind of uh, respiratory illness. Because, asthma. Yeah. It hasn't been discovered. So if we can, uh, take our clients kind of closer back from the cliff when they realize that it's 21 years later and we can still be hit with exposure, we'll just walk them back. It's okay. Come back to the safe space. Uh, put yourself, you know, maybe in, in their shoes and you get a claim form. Uh, what is your, First, second, third step for investigating this type of thing and making sure that uh, you know no one's trying to pull a fast one
1: on us. So there are a few different prongs that you definitely want to look at basically every single time. Um, one of them, if it's possible, is to speak to the insured, and that's often difficult because a lot of times, most times, maybe that insurance carrier no longer insures that employer. You're talking about a contract that existed. 20 years ago. Um, so, if it's possible, speak to the insured, find out whether that claimant was an employee of that insured, find out what kind of work they were doing, um, that kind of thing. Um, again, that's going to be a, t- a tough one in a lot of instances. You might not have anybody left at the insured who remembers the person. Uh, the company might not even be in business anymore. There might not be a good relationship with the insurance carrier. But if, if it's possible, that's a that's a huge one. Um, being that that's often not possible, you've also got things like the union records, right? Article 8A claims, World Trade Center claims have a specific period of um, for when the exposure occurred, it's 91101 through 91202. So you want to look and see was my insured the last exposure within that period? Right. So the union records are hugely important in Article 8A claims. If they haven't been filed at the time of the C3 having been filed, or if they haven't been filed by the time you go to trial, that's definitely something you want to ask for. Um, production of the the union records. Um, There's also the WTC-12 and the C-3 um, themselves, those are the claim forms. Um, You wanna see what's being alleged. Were they doing Article 8 a work, which is rescue, cleanup, and recovery? Um, Let's say the person was, I don't know, a hairdresser or a security guard or who knows, anything where they were doing their normal job activity and maybe they were in the Article 8 a zone of danger, which is defined by statute, it's a specific area uh, down in lower Manhattan in certain other specific areas um, that had to do with the cleanup. But if they were in that area, but just doing their regular job, you have a good argument that they were doing routine work and their claim is not subject to Article 8 right. It wouldn't be recovery. It wouldn't be rescue.
0: It would be cleanup. The hairdresser, the security guard would be performing hairdressing work or security guard work. And that wouldn't be classified as, or covered by Article 8 Exactly. So I guess, you know, That's what you're also trying to decide with the employer. I think you're right like with trying to determine the elementary employment relationship defense, but sometimes I look at that being more crucial because more often than not, the claimant probably knows he or she has to produce the union records to show that he had worked during the relevant 366 days, right? But he he or she also has to know that the work that he or she is doing within that time has to be covered under rescue, cleanup, and recovery, right? So you're not going to get a hairdresser claiming exposure under this article, right?
1: You'd be surprised at the number of claims that are filed um, by people who, I mean, realistically, what you see a lot are construction workers who were directly involved in the cleanup. And some of these other employment types of employment, like the security guard, there are people who were just down there um, and they weren't doing what we call Article 8A work, but they get filed often enough, and so this is a, 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 an excellent defense to keep in mind. Um, it definitely happens, uh, but realistically, most of these claims are people who were directly involved, and so those union records can be very important because even if your insured was the, the last employer during the Article 8A period, maybe they weren't doing Article 8A work for your employer.
0: Right. Oh, right. So maybe they did work that's covered by statute, but it's really the exposures associated with someone else.
1: Right. Maybe they were doing rescue, cleanup, and recovery in September and October of 2001, but by the time they worked for your clients insured in August and September of 2002, maybe they were just doing regular old construction. Maybe they weren't engaging in rescue, cleanup, and recovery at that point. Um, And there is some case law that says that economic recovery does not count as recovery pursuant to Article 8a.
0: Right. I was actually just going to bring like something like that up because recovery sounds like the catch-all, right? Like rescue, cleanup, and recovery. Like it seems like a wide umbrella. It'd be Like, oh, yeah, the recovery of the nation or, yeah. or the state of New York, the city of New York, where we're all recovering from it. I was doing my right. part, right, to help help out. So economic recovery – uh taking that out actually makes the umbrella a little bit more narrow because i could probably argue that anything in that zone of danger in that relevant time period was associated with economic recovery
1: you could certainly make that argument and again that's where having an employer witness helps or even the union records if you're looking at where the job was located and what kind of job they had i mean asbestos cleanup is a good example um If the person was clearly engaged in rescue, cleanup, and recovery, again, closer to the time of the disaster, and then they went back to their plain old asbestos removal job, and you cross-examine them, and you say, oh, by the time I worked for that company at that time, I was just going back to the normal, routine work of an asbestos removal. Yeah, then it's maybe not even economic recovery. At that point, it's just routine work. But Point being, recovery under the statute, for better or for worse, refers specifically to the recovery of human remains. All right. Okay.
0: Okay. Then that that actually takes another umbrella and makes it more narrow, uh, right? Human remains and then gets it a little dark. And uh, we, we understand that. And I think that there are some insurance companies and employers that, you know, do look at uh, a situation like a nine 11 uh, claimant and, you know, really decide that this is a compensable claim. Somehow though, when we're looking at even the, the asthmas and the cancers that aren't populated or aren't manifesting in 2001, 2002, is there any timely filing argument that we can make by investigating medical records before they actually file? Like maybe they might file today, but two or three years ago, they're getting scans for cancer. They're saying all this stuff. Is there any timely filing application or defense we can assert by investigating pre-existing medical records
1: yes subject to the caveat that you know article Article 8a claims the judge is actually required to pick the date of disablement most favorable to the claimant. right most favorable so if they kept working even if they've been treating for a while if they kept working until just recently or if they're still working um, timely filing is going to be a tough one Um, but again you know, if you can if you can show that um, they weren't doing Article A, they work, and then it goes from being an Article A, A claim to just an accidental exposure, and then once they remove from the exposure, that's only two years, so it's it's no longer uh, an occupational illness necessarily, kind of depending on what the medical reports say, and uh, you know when they when you know, what, how long they kept working for things like that. So yeah, it really does. Um, timely filing is definitely something you want to look at, definitely something you want to raise when you go in there. Um, and, yeah, a lot of it depends on how the illness is characterized, what type of work they were doing, when they stopped working, all those things. Okay. Uh,
0: and, and just to let everybody know, right, we're not just here to discuss uh, theories. and We're not creating uh, any kind of um, – you know, hypothetical for it. Uh, you know, we're out uh, on the battlegrounds, litigating these cases. And uh, Tim recently had uh, a board panel decision that uh, rescinded some findings that were adverse to our client. Um, so, how did you build, you know, those investigation tactics into creating an argument that worked for the board panel, but that it, but maybe didn't work before the law judge.
1: Well, so in this particular case, it was the claimant's own assertions on his WTC-12 that allowed us to cross-examine him in such a way to confirm that he had uh, not only prior qualifying Article 8A, Article 8A work for a, uh, for a um, construction company or, or a, a recovery company, but he also did volunteer work, right? This is something that he conceded on his claim form. And so, um,
0: and he probably wants to allege that, right? Like if you're a volunteer, you probably want to make it clear to the workers compensation board, all the things you did in the aftermath of nine 11,
1: right? Yeah, sure. I mean, people are very proud of, of having volunteered yeah. and that's great. Um, but you know, when your client as in our case is, um, uh, a private company, and the person did volunteer work, you always want to look and say, well, should this be with the volunteer fund? Should this more properly be with the volunteer fund? And that's what we did in this case. So um, if the claimant elects to pursue the claim as a volunteer, our client may um, not be liable for the claim. But I mean, this same philosophy, the same um, mode of thinking applies to any claim where the person worked for multiple employers, which is so often the case with construction or with asbestos type workers, whether it was volunteering, whether it was different employers, you always want to explore whether there's a possibility uh, that the liability should belong with some other employer, some other insurance company. Um, So, No, that's
0: that's a good point. Actually, the the comparison to your run-of-the-mill slip and fall where you might have multiple employers, it's the same thought process. So I guess when we look at that board panel decision, we have a rescission of findings made by the law judge, right? Why do you think those findings couldn't have been made by? I mean, they, I know they could have been made by the law judge, but what 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 do you think is the reason why a law judge isn't making that the finding now? Because I could I could sit here and make the argument that if the law judge did the right thing at the very get go, we'd be at a the claimant would be at a better place. But when the law judge makes a finding that is easily appealable, like what happened in this case, it actually creates a longer timeline and a delay that only serves, well not only, but it does serve the employer and carrier's interest because now there's a a delay in the proceedings. So why do you think a a law judge, or maybe the law judge in this case, didn't accept our argument that where the board panel did?
1: Right, so first of all, I agree completely that it's actually more favorable to the World Trade Center claimant to have everything done procedurally correctly, right, the first time. I think some judges are maybe, maybe, eager to establish a claim in favor of a claimant because they are very sympathetic claimants um, and they want these people to be compensated um, without too much delay. But of course, having to appeal a decision takes longer than just continuing the case for, for example, in this case, another another party to be unnoticed. Right. So, um, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that uh, it would have been better to do it that way without having to appeal it. And I've kind of lost track of what was the actual question? Well, I guess like, you know, I think you touched upon it with, you know,
0: why a law judge might make a decision that a board panel is not going to make, right? Like one thing you said is, you know, you have um, a very, um, what's the word, I guess, uh, you know, sympathetic, uh, situation where you want to have a case established board panels looking at the case more so on the facts and the law, right? They're not there taking testimony. And it's actually easier for us to create a procedural argument when the judge doesn't do it correctly. So you touched on one part of it. Is there, I, uh, the follow-up question I had was, is there a, you know, I guess an experience, uh, factor tied into it? Like I don't know that there are enough World Trade Center cases before a small amount of judges that just know Article 8A inside and out the way that you do, that maybe they don't have like the right tools or knowledge to actually go through the process correctly. Because it actually interplays with what you were saying as being maybe like, you know, some judges being uh, more likely to just establish the claim because of who the claimant is as opposed to what the law says. Do you think that that there aren't enough World Trade Center cases actually that be, that it would actually influence a judge in a way that you know they don't have the enough experiences with that type of case because every judge sees the slip and fall every judge sees you know uh, the you know oh I hurt my knee right they don't see the asthma cases as often right the, the World Trade Center rescue cleanup recovery um, exposure type cases. Is there an experience factor that prevents them from making the right decision earlier?
1: I think so. Um, You know, having done enough of these that I can tell right off the bat, um, you know, when I see a judge's name, uh, when I know who's handling the case, I, I know the ones who definitely do know quite a little a lot about it Um, so I know what I'm I'm going into hearing with the judge who really does know what they're doing with article a A. day and I won't name names obviously sometimes (laughs) sometimes you do get a judge who um, you know my impression would be okay maybe they haven't done as many of these and you kind of have to try and guide them in the right direction while advocating for your client obviously Um, so that can be a little bit of a challenge and thankfully we have the avenue of appealing when things don't go our way, um, but uh, yeah, it's definitely a factor in it. Although I do have a great deal of respect for all the judges of the Workers compensation <laughs> board. Very, very
0: important tagline to to end it with. I think that, uh, that because of all of this that's at play, right? Sometimes you know, from the insurance perspective or the employer's perspective, initially it's such a you know a difficult thing to comprehend that you get a claim twenty one years later but explaining it as far as like the manifestation of disease makes a little bit more sense. And also providing employers and carriers with a little bit of a playbook about how you would investigate these types of claims makes sense. Um, Do you think that uh, that playbook is something that you can rely on each time? Or are there cases where maybe you don't, you veer in a different direction, you say like, I'm not interested in talking to uh, the employer from 21 years ago are there any are there any fact patterns that maybe might present you with a reason uh, to to veer from uh, you know, your playbook
1: I mean I think you always do your initial evaluation from that tried-and-true playbook but just like with any other case there are so many different variables so many different fact patterns after you've lived with the case for a little while you kind of figure out okay these defenses are stronger in this case, and those defenses are stronger in that other case. So it's not always going to be the same uh, defense that you feel is your your best one, right? One, in one case, it's going to be, oh, this was routine work. This was not rescue, cleanup, and recovery. In another case, it's going to be, hey, this other employer should be responsible for the claim. This other carrier should be responsible for it. So uh, within the broader playbook, I think it's it's you know pretty well established. And then it's a matter of Looking closely at the facts um, in your particular case, and uh, figuring out what are your better arguments. No, I think that's I think that's the right
0: way to go about it, right? Because I think sometimes, uh, you know, we see some defense work done where it's like you, they're going through the playbook, they're going through the motions on how to do something, and providing that nuanced eye, like that, that experiential, uh, you know, modification to how these claims work and how we defend each and every single one on a more customized basis is actually what clients really need and what they deserve. Because a World Trade Center claim should definitely not go through the motions. It's very, very, very um, distinct and uh, intense. There's so many fact-specific ways that I think a claim can turn out, whether it's compensable or not, and who's liable for coverage. So I think that makes sense. that might actually be a, a great place to end the segment do you have any takeaways or tips for employers when they get this other than your 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 playbooks and strategies anything to watch out for any trends
1: I'm not sure there are any trends at this stage other <laughs> than that they just keep getting fired. yeah <laughs> yeah uh, you, you know um, no I mean it, it really is a question of uh, um, gathering as much information as you can um, and trying to uh, it's a unique area of law um, even within the workers compensation law there are different rules um, <clears throat> so it may require the help of an attorney um, but uh, you know it's a it's, it's unlike really any other kind of claim type that you're gonna get in the New York workers compensation law so you really have to take a close look at all the facts to figure out you know what your defense might be or conceivably whether um, you might want to accept the claim. I suppose that's an option as well, although you know, that's not our normal recommendation. Um, but you know, um, it's you really want to uh, know as much as you can about the case.
0: That's great. I think that's a great um, way to, to to close here. Uh, so uh, for Tim Kane, thank you, thank you for being on the show. But my for, pleasure. For, for Tim Kane, uh, my name is Christian Season. We'll be right back with a paralegal minute. For the paralegal minute, we have two new paralegals this month: Melissa Gannon and Uma Mystery. Welcome to the show, guys!
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: As you like, swivel in your chair. Just oh, yeah. like, oh yeah, like Doctor Told me style. to bring a
2: chair in, so I'm bringing my swivelly chair.
0: Okay. Uh, so when I asked you guys if you wanted to be on on the show, like there was this uh, decision point for you guys for which case you want to talk about right? Like, oh, like Melissa's got a couple cases we could talk about. And I was like, a couple? Like, so where we re- en- we're ending up now with this case, it almost makes me wonder, like, what what was the runner-up? Like...
2: I don't know. Did you have a runner-up case? I don't think I had a runner-up case. This was the only case I thought oh. of because of obvious reasons. The only yeah, one that okay. I had Nothing was... Nothing
0: compared to this fact pattern, I guess.
2: This fact pattern was something else, but... The only one that I had was someone who was electrocuted, and it was just through like one little plug and maybe like a hand, but she was claiming every single body part in her body, <laughs> like from the toe. Well, don't to give the away hair. a future
0: episode, Uma. <laughs> no, <laughs> so
2: maybe later on we could do that. One.
0: Okay, so we have this one fact pattern, and to remind everybody, uh, the paralegal minute showcases uh, not only our talented paralegals but also some of the crazy hypothetical situations that we, I guess they're not even hypothetical this is real this is a real thing that happened uh, in a case that you know, kind of brings life and color to what we do every day because you know what uh, I don't know about you guys sometimes when I tell friends and family about what I do they think that I'm the bad guy right like I'm representing the employer oh, yeah. in the insurance mm-hmm. company it's like well you know what here's this fact pattern for you I'm going to lay it on you <laughs> who's the bad guy now so, Melissa, since it's your case, uh, what what can you do to start us off here?
2: I mean, it was a pretty straightforward case when we inherited it a few months ago. You know, guy, like, tripped and fell, rolled his ankle, hurt his back, you know, going through all the motions of indemnity, medical, you know, all that stuff. Um, I don't remember if it was an IME or a medical, but he reported that he was working again, and he wrote his employer on the intake sheet, and my attorney read it as Ralph's Deli. And I was like, okay, Ralph's Deli. So I look at the intake sheet, and I was like, that doesn't say Ralph. So I read into it more. I was like, does that say Reptile Deli?
0: Oh. There's a
2: stark difference between Ralph and Reptile. I mean, his handwriting was really bad. so So <laughs> okay. it, it was fair that it was...
0: And when you hear Deli, you usually have a name before it. Right? Yeah. right? So it... Like Ralph, it's, It seemed right? pretty normal. Like I'm working it's, for Ralph's Deli, yeah. okay?
2: Part time, oh, some sandwiches yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. no, that's <laughs> <laughs> no. not the case. <laughs> so I looked into it to see if this was a real place. It is a real place. Like you,
0: you Googled Reptile Deli. Yeah. Okay.
2: It's a real thing. It's a bug and maggot and mouse holding thing to feed snakes and reptiles and stuff. So it is a deli. It is a deli oh. Not for us. Wow. Yeah. wow.
0: Oh nice. Nice. <laughs> nice, Guma.
2: <laughs> so, so I, I was th- like, hmm. <laughs> so I said to my attorney, I was like, this says reptile deli. And he's like, no, it doesn't. And I said, duh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and so I said, this is a real place, you know let's subpoena this place and see what we get.
0: Awesome. And did the, did the reptile deli give us information? They did.
2: Okay. They, they, they really didn't ask for a HIPAA. Nope. <laughs> they, they called me up very nicely and we're like, hi, we got your subpoena. You know, where can we send this information to? You know, right. like, oh, you could send it to me. That's fine. Yeah. So we got the information. He was working part time. Minimum wage, you know, not making a lot of money, but he was working there. So then we started to question because he's not receiving benefits at this point. How is he sustaining a living at this
0: right, point? Right, right. Like minimum wage. How are you yeah. living
2: on that? Right.
0: Which you can, uh, in theory, I guess, without getting political, but
2: but part time. He was working about oh part time fourteen yeah, hours yeah. a week.
0: So without getting benefits from workers' compensation, Mm -hmm. you can't live on
2: a part-time job. Right.
0: So what happened next?
2: So then we went to our adjuster and said, can we get social media reports, you know, just to Ah, see what this guy's doing.
0: Because, I mean, you work at the Reptile Deli, you're probably telling something about it. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Um, Once the social media report comes back, all this public information comes back that he's selling snakes, he's hosting podcasts, he's going to wait, reptile wait. conventions. He is no he podcast? the is he the Tiger King? <laughs> oh <laughs> snakes. He's the snake snakes. king. He's the snake oh, the king. Snakes.
0: Oh my, that, because I mean, initially I was waiting for a moment where I could just ask that question, (laughs) right? Like that was going to be my sole contribution to this segment of the podcast was, is this man the Tiger
2: King? Now you can see me out. (laughs) I made my joke. Oh yeah, exactly. (laughs) Hi.
0: Of snakes. Okay. So, uh, the snake man is selling, he's hosting podcasts
2: uh, I guess webinars, but
0: webinars like so. He's educational. He's educational, <laughs> Did right? You right.
2: Say he had a YouTube channel too, or something. He has a YouTube channel. I don't know if it's his YouTube channel, but he shows up on there. There is a YouTube oh, show channel for the Reptile Deli. There is. Ooh.
0: Well, the Reptile Deli or the company that he started. We get into that. Mm. So, like. <laughs> Well, the
2: plot thickens. <laughs> I guess since
0: now that we've let it out of the back I'm not gonna say the 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 company name out of uh, you know respect for the, the privacy of the case but the idea of a name having some kind of innuendo and we get to trial and what does he say
2: he, he basically said it's not what it seems. <laughs>
1: Like his, creative
2: it's his like, names.
0: It's like <laughs> you see like like in a movie where like someone gets caught cheating on their significant other. Mm-hmm.
1: Like
2: it's not what it seems. This is not what it looks like. Right.
0: Right. So okay. He's selling snakes, hosting a podcast. What is what does that mean for us?
2: I mean, it, it's not like he's selling, you know, $2 snakes. I mean, these snakes range from $500 to, I think, the most expensive was 6000 $6,000 Which would make sense if he's only working 14 hours a week. Yeah. Right. Then, and he's coming back with selling, I don't know, Ralph the Snake for $1,000. Like, he's making bank off of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And Ralph the Snake for $6,000 is probably not like, you know, a tiny, you know, garden snake in your backyard. Does he have
2: pythons?
0: Yeah right? What? I mean, that's not going to go for $6,000, right? It's going to be a huge snake that probably giant. goes for $6,000, right?
2: I mean, it, it's not more so that they're huge snakes. It's like they're nice-looking snakes. Like, they're pretty snakes. Like, I was... Like, uh, I had to go it's through... It's not the size of the snake. It's counts. not kills. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's the quality. And that's all.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the portion of the trial that goes about his company, right? Like he he testifies about his involvement and you know i guess if you if you're a person whether you have any involvement with a side business what are you going to say to a judge under oath do you think exactly what he did or do
2: you i think mean that- i could understand why he would downplay it if And I think we had talked about this. You said it was a hobby. He downplayed it as a hobby. Yeah, he said like this is just a hobby. Like I just do this for you know entertainment. And overall, he probably did have it as a hobby before. And since the business seems to be taking off, if he's selling thousand dollar snakes, then Mm -hmm. he could easily just downplay it as oh, it's just my hobby. Sometimes I make a lot of money. Sometimes I don't. It's not that big a deal. Yeah. Just to get the judge to be like, "All right, this isn't substantial." I'm trying to make it seem like it's not a steady, stable, yeah. right? Right. And
0: that's—I think—that's my point: is that the idea that the uh, you have that the idea that anyone has a side business, no one is going to go in there and say, "You know what? I'm actively involved. I do yeah. a lot of the lifting and the loading of the right. snakes onto the truck the, the delivering of the snakes to the to the new owner." No one's going to say that, right? So I'm reading this this trial transcript and I'm seeing, well, what else is he going to say, right? Of course he's going to say that. And I think it just lends more credence to the fact that if everybody's going to say this, then everybody should be held to this higher standard. If you have a side business... We know in the, in the future, you're going to testify to your lack of involvement in the business. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have an obligation to report that business as soon as uh, you're involved, right? Mm-hmm. Or if it's ongoing while the accident is in place. Because that's the whole point of uh, trying to figure out if you have defenses, right? If you right. don't disclose what you're doing, then how are we supposed to believe everything else that you say you're doing, right? Exactly so uh where where are we in the case now like what are we what are we doing
2: i mean right now we are waiting for a next hearing because the testimony was going on for so long that the judge basically said all right this is going on too long let's just continue this for another hearing um so basically we're just trying to strengthen the fact that he's making money from this business he didn't disclose to anybody that he was making money from this business and that it's not just a hobby, like this is a substantial money-making business.
0: Right. Because uh, the dollar value of income received or earned is not relevant to whether fraud has been committed, mm-hmm. but when you show that there is dollar value as attributed to the fraudulent action, it makes it even more like, eye-opening, right?
2: Do you think it will be worth getting some type of surveillance on him? I mean, I, do you know if you've got any surveillance on it? Potentially. I don't recall. Or if well, he shows up in one of those YouTube videos, <laughs> that's surveillance. Well, here's
0: the thing, right? Now that he knows that we're fighting him on this, yeah. right? Like, that's why surve- even saying surveillance now on a recorded podcast doesn't yeah. even matter, right? Yeah, because true. he knows that he's in a fight.
2: I mean, he's made his some of his stuff private at this point because all of the stuff that we had and we used was in public, the public domain. Mm-hmm. Right, like it wasn't anything that you couldn't just find. So he knows that we on you stuff to him.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, that's a very interesting point because it actually shows almost like like the cover up of a crime. Yeah. Like you, like if you know you committed a crime, you want to cover it up. You're just yeah. instinctively doing it. Where if you felt that your side business. Was legitimately not fraudulent in the workers' compensation. You'd just mm-hmm. be like, okay, it's it's public; it's out yes. there. I'm not going to change anything. Right. It's almost like the the post post hoc action. Yeah. Yeah. Adds to to the material. Um. So Uma, if you're the if you're the claimant's attorney here, what are what are you doing? What are you what are you worried about? What are you scared of? Or what do you what do you think you should be doing?
2: I mean, I think the claimant's attorney definitely recommended the claimant to make his social media private. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I wouldn't say maybe take a step back from the business, but make it known that I'm not doing as much with it. And if on testimony, they're talking about like, Oh, his lifting capabilities and stuff, the claimant will probably be like, ah. Oh, I'm not really doing any lifting. I'm more of like the person who helps out sometimes, like really try to downplay it even more. That's what I would do as a claimant's attorney, just try to downplay it. Keep the process. Keep the process because if he's already testifying consistently from the last hearing that he's downplaying this, that's what they probably are going to be doing in the next hearing too. If there's going to be more and more testimony. Yeah the judge know. is just gonna get so bored after this i, I mean i'm gonna get bored yeah I, i'm, well, I'm, I'm not, definitely not bored about it. <laughs> i'm this. not bored i went through like eight pages of just snakes and snakes and were snakes. were they pretty i bet they were really they big. were pretty Aww. he had a camera shy spider too i don't was very like great <laughs> <all. laughs> on the youtube channel that he no, has or it's or just... on his it was on a facebook post of his oh, and he was okay. listing all of the snakes and reptiles and whatever he had, and he said, camera-shy spider, wow. and I was like, thank God, because I would have to How clock does he out know for How a camera-shy spider? Did I he know. ask him? He said, would you like to be on camera? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, please, no pictures. No pictures, no pictures, please.
0: I feel like, yeah, that's not, that's not a file that we're going to get bored about, because, I mean how can you this is not your run of the mill like oh you started off as a slip and fall my ankle hurts i'm not getting any benefits whoop-de-doo and then all of a sudden just ralph's deli becomes
2: (laughs) reptile reptile deli deli
0: (laughs) and a side snake business uh i guess he's keeping it like level right he's working for a reptile deli and has a snake business he's consistent he has
2: a career goal. Right. Aww. And I respect that. I Love that for him. Right. But I don't want to see any more pictures of snakes. But I'm sure I'm going to <laughs> I'm actually kind of afraid of snakes. I'm afraid of snakes. <laughs> I don't mind snakes, but it was like, it's too many snakes. If it was spiders, different story. That oh, would have no. that would have mm-hmm. been all my attorney's job. I, I would, would not be, be setting foot in reptiles deli. I do not do bugs or snakes. No, thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's just like you're perusing like the lunch for your $6,000 snake at home.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: God, does this mouse look good? Uber eats.
1: Uber eats. <laughs> Uber <laughs> eats. <laughs> Pack it
0: up. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Well, I think that's a great case to look forward to. Um, I'm happy you guys came on the show to talk about it. Uh, and uh, to wrap up this segment, is there anything you would advise our clients to do based on what happened here?
2: Hmm. I mean if you know we recommend surveillance or running a social media report you know there's always a reason behind it it's not you know just to do something just for like okay there's nothing here like right there's usually a reason we're asking for right and yeah
0: coming coming from you know a, an in IME intake sheet
2: mm-hmm. right and yeah. we
0: find that and then just perform the investigation, we can do that on our end and work as like a partnership with our clients to make sure that we get, uh, you know, something going. So I think that's a great takeaway. Uh, thank you guys for being on the show. And um, so for Melissa Gannon and In The Mystery, uh, this is Christian Season reminding you to defend from day one.